Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, examining authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the Ideas Center of the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Shanti Kalathal, Senior Director of NED's International Forum for Democratic Studies, recording from our studio in Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Christopher Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the Endowment. Today, assumptions about the consolidation of democracy across Central, Eastern, and Southern Europe are being challenged as vulnerable democracies contend with difficult governance questions, as publics become more polarized, and as the very conversation about these issues becomes ripe for manipulation due to unforeseen vulnerabilities stemming from our modern information environment. Internationalist authoritarian regimes are deliberately seizing upon these conditions as they seek to exert influence in the region, and even the established democracies of Western Europe are finding they need to further develop their own capacities to analyze and respond to this authoritarian resurgence. To help us understand the shifting landscape in Europe and how China and Russia's authoritarian interests and values may converge in this space, we're pleased to welcome to the show Andrea Kendall-Taylor, a senior fellow and director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, to discuss curbing authoritarian influence in Europe. Welcome, Andrea. Thanks so much for having me. So, Andrea, you not so long ago co-authored a foreign affairs piece with Dave Shulman of the International Republican Institute, in which you both argued that there have been longstanding efforts by Russia and China to, in their own respective ways, weaken the rules-based order. But you, at the same time, argued that there are new factors that are also increasing the current threat to democracy. So I was hoping you could give your perspective on what might be called the longstanding approach by Russia and China and what, in your view, is now changing. Sure. So I think um, when we look at Russia and China, there are a number of longstanding efforts to undermine democracy, including especially on the part of the Russians, which is the side of the equation that I know better, um, you know, certainly providing to support to pro-Russian authoritarian regimes um, in ways that make those governments more durable, more resilient. So they make it easier for a lot of these governments, these in currently authoritarian regimes, to prolong their time in office. Um, you know, even thinking of what's happening in Venezuela, longstanding Russian support to that regime there, a lot of the things that the Russians do help increase the viability of those authoritarian regimes and thereby decrease the risk or the prospects, I should say, for democratization. Um, and then, of course, you know, just spreading networks of corruption. Um, but I think what's changed, particularly in the wake of their illegal annexation of Crimea, so post-2014, is we've seen um, an increase in the scope in their intensity of Russian efforts. And um, we've really seen the Russians, I think, taking the fight to Western democracies. For a very long time, we've said um, that Russia and China together uh, seek to push back on democracy promotion, that they see democracy promotion and particularly U.S. efforts to spread democracy as these thinly availed uh, attempts by the United States to spread its influence and that that's what they've taken a stand against. And I think it's time for scholars and us to start thinking about if now what we're seeing is more than that, that they are going on the offensive and that there is some sort of authoritarian promotion. Um, and I think the things that we've seen that are different, number one, I would say, is there seems to be, in, in our view, David and I, when we look at the landscape, particularly in Europe, uh, some synergy, I think, between what Russia and China are doing. So Russia and China, as the way that they approach Europe, they do it in vastly different ways. 
uh, the Russians are spreading disinformation and corruption, and those types of actions uh, serve to weaken some democratic actors' commitment to democracy. Um, but then it's the Chinese who sweep in behind them with the infusion of cash that gives these governments the ability and the capacity to actually pull away from the West. So it's kind of like a double whammy. And I think it's the convergence of those two things that's amplifying the longstanding tactics. I think the other thing that's new, too, is we see Russian and Chinese actors really um, picking up on this idea of sovereignty. And they're warning these governments about the risks, as they see it, of engagement with the United States and Democratic West. And they're using that narrative, I think, to try to to prevent governments or to dissuade governments from engaging with the United States and other Western democracies. So that sovereignty narrative, I think, is also something that's that's new and different and also helping them um, advance their cause. And I guess maybe just the last thing I would say, just as you know, drawing on this article, there's also some good academic research. I think it's um, Siva Gunitsky and Charles Boy who show that the structure of the international system shapes the number of democracies in the world at any given time. So when you have um, a single powerful democracy in the world, as the United States has been in the post-Cold War era, the number of democracies in the world increases. Um, but when you have a powerful or influential autocracy that rises, then the pendulum swings in the other direction and you see the number of autocracies rise. And there's a number of reasons why that happens. Um, you know, you thinking about emulation effects. So I think, you know, especially with the Chinese model, they've demonstrated that um, prosperity no longer has to run through the democratic West. And certainly, I think a lot of leaders in Europe, Orban and Erdogan, have looked to Putin's tactics and emulated or sought to replicate elements of what they see Putin doing. So there's an emulation effect. Um, but I think then the point is that these governments don't actually have to be promoting autocracy for them to dilute and undermine democracy. And it's also because, especially as China with its economic influence comes in, these countries then now have a viable alternative to the West. And so they can play the West off Russia and China, and that significantly dilutes uh, Western leverage over those countries. So it doesn't have to be democracy promotion um, for them to actually you know, whether they're intending it or not, their actions are making it more difficult for democracies to to remain and endure and thrive. So there are a number of interesting ideas there. I mean, the first, I think it's striking. We used to talk about a demonstration effect in democracies, exactly. you know, and now it's almost as though we're seeing a reverse of mm -hmm. that. Um, and the other point that is really interesting is this idea of autocracy promotion and the idea that um, that there is actually a, a, a desire and intent to corrode democratic systems. Um, this, to my mind, and when I interact with um, some thinkers and policymakers in Europe, I, you know, and you can give me your own view on this, I tend to see a divide between how they view Russia and how they view China. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, they seem to view the Chinese government and its actions and its investments in Europe as purely about money. And they don't really see the political implications as clearly, whereas perhaps with the Russian case, that that's a little bit more explicit and that's a little bit more easily understood. What's your take on that? I think I agree with what you said, especially kind of post-Crimea and all of you know the Skripal incident and all of the Russian efforts to interfere in elections. I think the Europeans are very clear-eyed about what the Russians are doing, and we've seen a real increase in 
their efforts to push back against that. So I think that there is a very kind of clear idea about what Russia is and what it does in Europe. Um, but as you said exactly, I think the China question is is totally different. And the Europeans, I think, have been very slow to come to see the challenges that China may present to Europe in the long term. And I think that's slowly changing. And certainly that perception is uneven across Europe. So in the Eastern European countries and even some of the Southern European countries like Greece, that they do, they see the economic benefits of engaging with China. Um, I think some of those countries, particularly in Eastern Europe, um, are dissatisfied by what they thought would be more of a kind of not redistribution, but that there would be more of an economic catch-up that would have taken place when they joined the European Union that I think they they perceive hasn't happened. And so where do they want to turn? Well, there's this, uh, you know, a new partner in town and they're bringing a lot of cash with them. And so it makes them a more attractive partner. And that's what they've seen. Um, I think that does contrast a little bit uh, with some of the um, Northern European and Western European countries where I think we're slowly starting to see uh, an awareness about what China is doing and the challenges that it will create uh, in Germany. And uh, like I said, a lot of the North European countries, there's an increasing attunedness, uh, if that's a word, to what China is doing um, and starting to take steps to try to uh, confront or uh, address the challenges that China poses. So Andrea, at the outset, you mentioned the the possibilities of these leading authoritarian regimes to, in essence, serve as as patrons for other authoritarians to prolong the authoritarian um, leadership in certain settings. You alluded to Venezuela as one case, but maybe we can move down one level and talk about the um, vulnerabilities to institutions within democracies in an era of globalization where the engagement and intersection of um, commercial firms that operate out of Moscow and Beijing, um, various other initiatives that maybe come under the guise of civil society, gongos and so forth, and how um, where the vulnerabilities are within the democracies to this sort of engagement, which is far more intensive and comprehensive today than it was even five or 10 years ago. What what should we be looking at in that context? Well, this is your area of expertise with the sharp power, I think. Um, so certainly, I think you'll probably have some really good ideas. But um, I mean, I think it's the, the corruption piece of this is really important, especially in particular regions like the Balkans. Um, there are a lot of efforts, I think, there to use those corrupt networks to increase Russian influence. So, I mean, in terms of thinking about responding, some of the anti-corruption efforts, working with even some of the intelligence services to try to expose the corrupt networks and some of the actors that are on Russian payrolls, um, thinking of kind of the illicit finance. There's a whole host, I think, of those economic opportunities to try to crack down on those networks. And it's not just those types of efforts aren't just about building the resilience of the democracies on Russia's borders, but I also think it's an incredibly effective way to address Russia itself. Um, because we know as a highly personalized authoritarian regime, those countries are the most uh, dependent on corruption to sustain themselves in office. That is the logic of those regimes. And so if we can target those types of uh, monetary flows, it strangles kind of the lifeblood of that regime. So it's kind of a two for one, I think, in terms of building the resilience of those democracies on Russia's borders, but also confronting um, the Putin regime itself. And a related question uh, that arises from your testimony recently on Capitol Hill, 
Uh, you noted that one of the trends more broadly is that authoritarian regimes are becoming more uh, intensive in their control and centralizing power. And I wonder if you'd just say a few words about whether you think that um, countries like China and Russia have been effective in an era of globalization and centrally hunkering down and immunizing their own systems from many of these forces that have generated real turbulence within democracies, whether it's in the information space or in the commercial realm, and how we should think about that. Do they have an inherent advantage, or is this just a temporary state of affairs that's bound to change? Yeah, I think that's just su such an important question. There was a lot written, you know, Moises Naim had the end of power, and I think there was a lot of um, optimism that with globalization and information technologies that autocrats would no longer be able to retain the degree of control that would be required to keep their grip on power. And as they've adapted, I mean, certainly, um, you know, technology and, and some of these changes were destabilizing initially to some regimes, but what we see is their ability to adapt and evolve and meet the contemporary challenges. And so now I think we are at a place where that's a real, I mean, I think that's one of the most important questions is whether or not in this environment, given their control over courts and the media and business leaders, that they are able to drive more effectively to get things done at a time when it contrasts with kind of some of the chaos and the polarization and the stagnation that we're seeing in Western democracies. And I guess I'll just say on that front, put in a, a quick plug, at CNAS, we've just launched a project called Combating High-Tech Illiberalism that is going to tackle and get into this question. One of the projects we'll be working on is trying to understand how technology affects the ideological competition between democracy and authoritarianism. And I think it's not just about the control tactics. Certainly China, Russia, all of these countries are using technology to increase control over their populations. But I think a really important question is then, are they going to be able to harness technologies in ways that enable them to enhance performance? And we, you know, in a lot of these regimes, authoritarian regimes, the social contract is what helps keep these leaders in power. And if they can deliver growth, uh, that increases the resilience of the regimes. And also if they can use technology to mimic some aspects of democracy, like representation or you know the anti-corruption efforts that you see in China. China has all sorts of online efforts in local villages and things that I think there's some good research that shows with the anti-corruption and some of the participatory forums that they've created, that when people participate in those venues, in those forums, they feel more satisfied with government. And so that, it's just such an important question, and democracies are going to have to figure out how to respond and how to deliver. And in that context, of course, in the China case, but also in other such settings, the darker interpretation of how technology may evolve would be what we're seeing in Xinjiang now, which yeah. is um, developing the capacity to preempt free expression, to get out in front of dissent in ways that, even as recently as a few years ago, really would have been unthinkable. And now we're seeing it unfold before our eyes in parts of China, and that's being diffused increasingly. So I think um, 
it's good to hear that you'll be focusing more on this yeah, in the coming term. It's very dystopian. Yeah. I mean, it really is. But then, and so that that there's the authority. And then, how do democracies address things? We, we were talking before a little bit about artificial intelligence and AI, but mostly the automation piece of it. So, as job, I mean, I think obviously it's going to deliver huge benefits in a lot of ways. But it's also um, these advancements or these changes are going to be incredibly disruptive. And so, if Western democracies can't figure out how to find new areas for workers to work and retrain them in those positions, um, there are going to be winners and there's going to be losers. And as we've seen with populism, that's one of the factors that's been so um, decisive in, in fueling that trend. And so some of these technological changes, democracies are going to have to you know, be very forward-leaning with solutions so that, so that they can compete with some of these things that are happening in authoritarian settings. I think, you know, I... I, as Chris knows, I could talk about this subject all day, and so I'll try not to. But, but one thing I want to pick up on is, particularly with respect to the technology sphere, but it goes beyond this, there's been a lot of conversation about the idea of, of exporting authoritarianism. And this, in particular, with respect to China, um, typically tends to be the frame where people talk about how China is refining the techniques that it's used in Xinjiang province and other places, techniques of control and repression, and then selling those technologies to like-minded autocrats around the world. But one thing that you um, have written about is that what China and Russia are doing actually goes beyond just exporting authoritarianism to like-minded actors. It actually is oriented around weakening democratic institutions and weakening democracies overall. And I think if we think about the actions of these large internationalist authoritarian regimes solely in the mold of exporting authoritarianism, we sort of blind ourselves to the fact that actually there's a lot that's happening within democracies, within democratic institutions. Um, and so we need to also keep our eye on that piece of the equation. With respect to technology, and I think we're now more aware of the disinformation piece, particularly with respect to Russia, but not just with respect to technology, that it kind of goes beyond that. Um, so you know, what's your take on this and sort of the way that we've framed the problem to date? Yeah, but I mean, I, I mean, it has been largely framed in that exporting uh, authoritarianism lens. But I mean, as you say, there's so much that's happening in democracies themselves. And for Russia and China, they view um, their power in terms that are relative to the United States, I think. And so from their point of view, I mean, looking at, at Russia in particular, it, this doesn't apply to China, but when you look at Russia, their demographic picture is quite dismal. Their economic prospects, you know, they're looking at 1% to 2% growth for the next 10 years. Their future picture doesn't look all that great. Um, and so if you're Putin and you don't expect that you're, you know, you're, you're, that you're going to be gaining in power over the next 10 to 15 years, well, then how do you increase your own standing, go after the United States and weaken those democracies? And then by definition, you become relatively more powerful. So for him, going after Western democracies is about increasing and raising his own power relative to the West. The other thing, so it's the exportation uh, from authoritarian regimes to other like-minded authoritarian regimes. Um, but I think the other piece of the equation is also about the coordination and the collaboration. And so one of the things that I've also been thinking about is the relationship between Russia and China um, in and of itself and what that might mean for democracy. When you look at what's happening with Russia and China across a whole uh, scope or a whole spectrum of indicators, that relationship is deepening. So looking at the economics, China now is the biggest importer of uh, Russian oil. 
Uh, China has surpassed Germany as Russia's biggest trading partner. Uh, they're exercising militarily together, most recently in the Vostok 2018 exercises. Xi and Putin are obviously you know, two birds of a feather, and they flock together. Um, but it's not just at the leadership level. It's also um, the whole at, at a bureaucratic level, the, the exchanges between the two governments. And so I think what the United States needs to be very mindful of is the potential for that relationship to deepen. And we certainly don't need to be talking about a fully fledged formal alliance. But imagine, you know, if in, from in a co coordination and collusion perspective, what if Putin or what if she decided to do something in the South China Sea at the same time, conveniently, that Putin decided to do something in Europe? And so it's the coordination, I think, between some of the the, the most powerful uh, authoritarian regimes that has the potential to create huge challenges. And I guess the other thing I would say, too, is with Xi, we're seeing him personalize control. So he's eroding the consensus-based uh, decision-making that's been prevalent in China since Mao. And so those they're looking more similar in power. It's the strongman model. And I think, in my mind, as those two countries look more alike, I think it provides a more compelling model to emulate than if they're kind of vastly different forms of authoritarianism. So it's kind of the likeness and the coordination and the collusion and the exporting. All of that, I think, is a, an incredibly troubling picture. So I think it's a very important observation. And I, I've found one barometer, an emblem of this over the years that in a way has been staring us in kind of plain sight and people have it chose for one reason or another not to focus on is something like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, where you've had a structure that at the outset I think many people didn't see as so meaningful, but it's taken shape over the years in the spirit of what you just described. And uh, people like Alexander Cooley of Columbia University and others have focused on this, I think, in a very thoughtful way. But this notion that has held for so many years that whatever cooperation there is between the Russian state and the Chinese state must simply be a marriage of convenience, really needs some reflection. Because if anything, you see the, the, the way in which the cooperation evolves tends to be in the way those governments take on democratic standards and values, including in the rules-making bodies at the regional level, at the global level, and in the internet governance level. And as um, colleagues of mine noted um, in an edited volume we produced several years ago, here, authoritarianism goes global. It's really interesting to note that China and Russia, Iran and Saudi Arabia may have violent disagreements, especially Saudi Arabia and Iran, on a host of issues. But when it comes to opposing democratic standards and human rights, including in the bodies that set the rules, they all align pretty seamlessly. Yeah, I agree with that. And but I would almost like take that and up you one because I think what I so I think for a long time when we've talked about Russia and China, we agree that they're aligned or they're brought together in a shared discontent with the United States. And so it's they're they're joined in discontent. But what I worry about though is that it's actually turning into something more proactive. And so you mentioned now their values are aligned in a way that I think is more deep than we've seen previously. Their view of how the world should be ordered has converged. And so I worry that it's not just aligned in their discontent, but they're that they're actually building something more positive. And to me, that's a that's a, a even a different proposition. Well, let me take. Um, let me see if I can be a little contrary here. Do you see any areas where they're actually competing for influence, or where their interests are not aligned? 
and whether that speaks to any advantages for the democracies in that respect. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's something that we need to look into carefully. Um, I mean, certainly, historically, we've talked about a lot of strategic regions where we've expected to see um, their competing interests and that that would kind of sow fissures or drive a wedge in the relationship. We've talked a lot about that in Central Asia, certainly in the Balkans. Um, but you know what? We, it, we've been saying that for at least a decade, and it hasn't come to fruition and if anything, it seems as if Putin is kind of ready to throw his lot in with the Chinese and ride the coattails, um, b- because I really don't think that we've seen uh, the competition in places like Central Asia. So we used to say, you know, that that China is the economic actor, uh, that they had this tacit kind of division of labor. China will do the economics, and Russia was willing to tolerate that. Russians did the security and kind of political stuff, um, and that was their tacit agreement um, and 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 it and that's worked and even though China has the Belt and Road Initiative and other things we see efforts by Putin I think to link up the Eurasia Economic Union with the Belt and Road Initiative um, so if anything I think we've been waiting for a long time to see the conflicting interests drive them apart in some of these strategic regions but it's it hasn't yet come to pass and if anything it's more of a story of, of they're both kind of glad because they're now working towards, I think, this uh, shared vision. And in a way, what you've described is really these authoritarian powers taking the initiative and the democracies are on their heels. I think what we've discussed so far is um, it's, it's pretty grim in the aggregate in the sense of the trajectory of things. But I might um, just ask you to build on what uh, Shanti was discussing. Um, you know, it seems in a way that There are so many, if you kind of check off the ledger, so many weaknesses um, in these large authoritarian states. And you you kind of went down the list in the Russia case. Uh, China has its fair share of problems by any uh, measure. And the democracies, for all of their challenges, and they are evident to all right now, um, still have an enormous uh, advantage by just about any objective measure. So if you were to kind of step back and say, what what should the democracies be doing in the foreseeable term as we sort out through um, discussion, some of it very heated and often toxic in the democracies to try to get to a, a place where we're able to um, respond and take the initiative ourselves, what would you see as the, the two or three things that would be most important in broad terms for the democracies to do to start being able to retake the initiative? Yeah, that's it's a good question, and it's hard to come down with the two or three because there's just probably so many things to do. Um, but probably, I mean, number one, I think, uh, is the importance of allies and partners for the United States to be shoring up the allies and partners. So thinking about you know China's increasing influence and presence and footprint in Europe, um, I think China got the memo a long time ago, and they understand that in a world with China's rise, that that people would you know, you either bandwagon or you balance. And so the Europeans will have a choice to make if the United States and Europe are gonna balance together against the Chinese. And I think that, you know, a lot of what the Chinese are doing is trying to get the Europeans at least to be fence sitters and not to squarely join the US camp. And so kind of the current tensions in the transatlantic relationship obviously are good news to Putin, but it's also good news to the Chinese. And so I think, you know, step number one is making sure we shore up alliances Um, and build relationships with partners because in a competition with China, 
uh, we're going to need them. So that's kind of number one. Number two is, I mean, we, we talk about building the resilience of democracies at home and the resilience of democracy in Western Europe. That's obviously incredibly important. And sometimes I worry with kind of the Russian uh, interference narratives and things, not more than narratives, the Russian interference, um, th- though that we lose sight of the, the root of the problem, which is the fissures and the polarization in democracies themselves. Those are what the Russians are preying on. They're not creating the divisions. The divisions already exist. And the Russians then are coming in and amplifying and looking to exploit those divisions. So as a, as a, you, you know, the United States, I think, has a lot of work to do in terms of um, just shoring up the strength of democracy at home. And it can be any, you know, civics education people have talked about, people participating more in politics. Um, there's a number of things that that our democracy can do. And then I think maybe for a third thing is thinking about how we compete with China in terms of the technology piece. And I think that's going to be really a, a key arena of competition. And so it means um, building up our capacity domestically, investing in the education system, investing in the development of technologies that will enable the United States to maintain its competitive edge. Um, and then developing the frameworks and the regulatory environments and trying to manage the, the, the challenges that technology pose. And that's vast. I mean, it's everywhere from the information space, you know, which is causing more polarization, I think. So what, how, do, how do tech industries respond to some of that? Um, and, and then managing some of the changes that are coming down the pipe with uh, the artificial intelligence and automation. How will we as a society take care to ensure that we don't see more winners and losers that are just furthering the polarization and divisions in our country that, that can be exploited by these actors? And I think one of the things that's so striking in what you describe, and you're alluding to the challenges that the U.S. faces, but in the conversations we've had here with a wide range of people from around the world, really democracies from just about every conceivable setting, uh, you could plug in a country name of any democracy and essentially have the same challenge there, precisely because the space is open, the technology tends to be open, the platforms tend to be open, and therefore the vulnerabilities are there. And so I think part of this um, issue of working with allies is figuring out how to use those um, friendships and partnerships in ways that can advance the resilience across the democracies. Yeah, and it's so important to do it in a cohesive and coordinated way because you you can squeeze China in one country, but they're going to squirt out somewhere else. And so they're going to find the weak link and exploit the weak links. So it's got to be something that's done across the board because if it's not, it's going to be like a -a whack-a-mole kind of thing and and not effective. So before we wrap up our conversation, I'd like to conclude with our final segment called What We're Reading, where we discuss what's at the top of our respective reading lists and might recommend to our listeners. So, Andrea, would you like to go first? I feel like I'm a little bit embarrassed um, because um, because of my lack of reading at the current moment. But um, I think, you know, so I left government uh, l- less than a year ago. And so I am actually going back and reading some things that I feel like I missed when I was in government. So what's on my bedside table at the moment is Brian Taylor's Code of Putinism. Um, but I feel like I at least need to explain some of my lack of reading um, because uh, in large part, it's because I've been doing a lot of writing on my own book, um, which is a textbook that will be published this summer by Oxford University Press with some co-authors, Erica France and Natasha Lindstadt. 
Um, and it's a textbook on democracy and authoritarianism. So certainly very relevant to this podcast. So hopefully people can look for that uh, this coming summer. Um, and now that that's done, I do hope to start reading a little bit more. Uh. Terrific. Uh, Chris? So I'm reading a recently released report that came out um, at the Brookings Institution titled Democracy and Disorder, The Struggle for Influence in the New Geopolitics. And it was authored by Bruce Jones and Tori Tosig. It um, covers a lot of ground. The, the report that those two authored look at issues relating to international and external challenges to democracy on a, on a wide range of important fronts. And this, this project included an enormous constellation of contributors. So there was the, the report I'm alluding to is essentially a hub for an enormous number of contributions on some terribly important subjects um, relating to the future of competition, broadly between democracies and autocracies, issues relating to democracy in East Asia, um, and so forth. Uh, I can't do it justice here, but I would commend our listeners to this report, which is really an important contribution to the debate. And I'm reading the excellent new report by Charles Parton of the UK's Royal United Services Institute, a defense-oriented think tank. It's called China-UK Relations, Where to Draw the Border Between Influence and Interference. Um, and for one thing, I think the question it asks is quite pertinent, and my own view would be that perhaps when it comes to authoritarian efforts and democracies, uh, there's not so much a hard border as something of a gray zone of possibly legal but nonetheless corrosive activity in what I would term a broader spectrum of influence, uh, a spectrum between influence and interference. Um, but apart from that, I think this report is an extremely useful breakdown of Chinese Communist Party activities in the UK. It looks at academia, at think tanks, at publishing, the press, and the wider politics and policy environment. And I, I really haven't previously seen such a thorough examination in the UK context. And I would certainly hope this might inspire similar analysis for countries throughout Europe. So I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Andrea Kendall-Taylor for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was a lot of fun. That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on the topic we discussed today, you can read Andrea Kendall-Taylor's recent testimony on February 26, 2019, before the U.S. House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence on Autocracy's Advance and Democracy's Decline as well as her October 2018 Foreign Affairs article co-authored with David Shulman, How Russia and China Undermine Democracy. Both are available on the website of the Center for a New American Security. For further analysis on the themes we discussed today and we'll be examining in future podcast episodes, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence. We also invite you to join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us using the handle at ThinkDemocracy. Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, producer Jessica Ludwig, and our editing and sound engineer Rochelle Faust. I'm Chris Walker with Shanti Kalathil and Andrea Kendall-Taylor. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on curbing authoritarian influence in Europe and invite you to tune in again for future Power 3.0 podcasts.